This episode of Ministry Monday is brought to you by the American Guild of Organists, NPM's proud partner in professional development for church musicians. NPM members can attain the AGO service playing or colleague professional certifications, and registration is now open for the 2024 dual certification exam cycle. Learn more at agohq.org forward slash certification or npm.org forward slash organ dash certificate. From NPM, the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, this is episode 230 of Ministry Monday. Ministry Monday is a weekly podcast about music, ministry, and liturgy produced by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, or NPM. What is NPM? NPM is a national association that fosters the art of musical liturgy. The members of NPM serve the Catholic Church in the United States as musicians, clergy, liturgists, and other leaders of prayer. For more information, go to npm.org forward slash join. Have a question? Email us anytime at ministrymonday at npm.org. Hello, and welcome to Ministry Monday. I am your host, Amanda Bruce. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to Ministry Monday wherever you listen to your podcasts each week, and thank you for joining us today. Today, we go to the Ministry Monday archives and rediscover one of its most popular episodes. Today, we speak to Brother John Glassnap, a Benedictine monk of St. Meinrad Arch Abbey in southern Indiana, where he currently serves as director of the newly formed St. Meinrad Institute for Sacred Music. Brother John earned a Master's of Arts in Medieval Studies from Fordham University and a Ph.D. in Historical Musicology from Columbia University, specializing in chant. Brother John's viewpoint on chant in the church is deeply rooted in a full historical context, which is what we're here to discuss today. Why can chant be challenging to today's pastoral musicians? What are the roots from which chant was created? What are the roots of chant in the Catholic Church alone? How did we get here, and what can we do next? Brother John joins me from the Arch Abbey in St. Meinrad, Indiana. Okay, so today on Ministry Monday, I am speaking to Brother John Glassnap. Hello, how are you today? Hi, good to see you. It's good to see you too. We are recording this uh, in the week following the Traditions of Chant workshop that we hosted or I should say that NPM hosted, but you helped to moderate with brothers Kajitan and Justin. And I don't know about you, but I thought it went really, really well. I learned so much. Yeah, it was an exciting, uh, exciting event. I think that uh, we need to spend more time talking about, when we talk about chant, talking about chant globally. We often assume we're talking about Gregorian chant, but in fact, there's all kinds of different repertoires of chant that are being developed as we speak. So uh, I was really glad to shine a spotlight on what they're doing in West Africa because it is such phenomenal music. It was, it was so good. I'm so glad. And if anyone's listening and they want to learn more, 
currently the recap and the replay as well as additional musical examples are still available at npm.org. So you can go and take a listen. But enough for my shameless plug. I am I, I'm here though to speak with you and continue the conversation about chant, which is where we are today. So Brother John, I know this is kind of an open-ended question to start, but I think it's a good place to kind of set our framework for our conversation today. So what is the status of chant in the church today? And what makes chant unlike any other type of music? Well, chant is the oldest repertoire of music that we know of globally. It's the most widespread geographically. Uh, it was the first to be notated. Uh, getting chant exactly right was probably the impetus for developing music notation uh, from the beginning. So chant is uh, unbelievably important for the liturgy of the Catholic Church, for music generally. It's been held up consistently in the 20th century as the supreme model, as Pope Pius X called it, and the, the epitome of sacred music. So it's something we really can't get around as liturgical musicians. Whether or not we're singing chant uh, in our parishes or directing it, or not, uh, it, still, it still looms very large in what we value as liturgical musicians, how we find the sacred in music, we're always being pointed towards chant to, to find that. So uh, the, the largeness of chant, the antiquity of chant, just how big it is in every way, uh, has you know, chronologically over a thousand years old, spread throughout the, the Latin church. We find versions of it in the Byzantine church, of course, uh, does present problems as well. It's not, uh, it's, it's a lot to wrap our head around. So this has been something that the 20th century uh, from like 1903, Pius X really set as a project in the church and Vatican council uh, weighed in on this as how do we make chant uh, presentable with any kind of historical integrity? How do we make it accessible for for congregations and religious communities. And this is an ongoing, an ongoing issue. Uh, so, so I'm glad to be talking about it with you today. How, what, what are some of the most specific or identifiable features in your opinion of Gregorian chant that maybe we can adapt into our ministry or liturgy versus adopting them? Like what's the nuance there? Well, I think for, uh, for yeah, for for chant, that's I think that's the that's that's the challenge is that uh, so I, I mentioned already this this motto proprio. I don't really speak Italian, but it's not called something like Tralla Salutitudine or something. Anyway, Pope Pius the tenth uh, nineteen o three issues a pretty forceful recommendation or forceful uh, yeah recommendation I guess is the best word mm -hmm. that uh, that chant be fully restored that it be held up, uh, but that it also go back to the earliest sources and that became the basis of every Vatican edition of chant since then. All the chant books that you find at, you know, in any Catholic publisher or anything else, they're all based on this idea of restoring the earliest. That came at a point in history where we thought there was one version of chant that was composed either by Pope Gregory the first or by the papal choir. But if we just did enough research on the earliest manuscripts, we could find what this original source was. Well, since then, scholarship has kind of moved on and we understand that there wasn't really an original. Uh, but nonetheless, the problem is now is that with, with this 
theory of origins is that chant when we if we imagine there to be one version of chant and that if the the imperative is to go back and do that only then we've really like reified or or like uh fixed the tradition in a way that it never really was fixed it was always adapting there were always new liturgies being added new saints being added other saints kind of falling off the calendar various kinds of devotions you, you name it Vatican II is just one in a long line of those, those kind of adaptations. And the tradition of chant, one of the most remarkable things about it is it was always able to adapt. So, I, so it becomes a, a problem really when, I, on the one hand, it sounds very good to say, let's restore it to the earliest version. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the danger of that is that we make it too rigid and that it becomes just a matter of adopting the old versions rather than continuing to adapt them, which is really, what, from what we understand now historically, how it's always worked and really the secret to chance unbelievable longevity. Adapting versus adopting is a very interesting conversation, I believe, whenever it comes to Gregorian chant, because you and I have discussed that chant in some ways to a lot of people may feel like it is an obstacle versus a conduit for prayer because of maybe it can be found intimidating, um, both in notation, modal system, as well as the acoustics that we, we, we figure that, you know, that, that we use in our churches. So, you know, how do we try and adapt versus adopt chant in the role in the liturgy? Well, I think like you mentioned acoustics, that, the, that is site specific. So every community has to figure out a way in that moment where they are in time, what it is they can do, what it is they want to do. It has to respond to not only to the liturgy and some these abstract you know, qualities or something, which, which are important, I don't wanna diminish that, but it has to be realized by each community what, what is prayerful, what, what sounds good, what's realistic, what's feasible. And that's true for all music. I think for whatever reason, you know, chant has so, comes with so much authority and so much historical heft that we're afraid to engage it and we're afraid to not do it correctly or something. It also comes out, you know, chant was this language of restoration, but these, these additions that that we have now are kind of based on 19th to 19th century that come out of a, like a masterpiece culture. So if we, you know, think of like Beethoven scores and stuff, you know, people for a long time, every little tiny dot and tittle that maybe Beethoven wrote, it's like, it must be exactly that way. Mm -hmm. And we often teach chant that way. So some of these, some of the more recent additions, I'm thinking of like the Graduale Triplex, which have three different types of notation all layered on top of each other, right. including the earliest and then the square notes, because they want to get every little tiny nuance that was in that early notation. That absolutely terrifies people. It's so <laughs> scary. And it basically makes it seem like, you know, if you're not conversant in all these extremely ancient and very, like, frankly, unclear styles of notation and you don't get every single thing right, then somehow you're doing it wrong because there's only one way, one way to do it. 
And that one way may not make sense in where you are. Again, talking about acoustics, maybe you have a church that's carpeted <laughs> and you have to figure out a way to fill out that sound that uh, because chant is monophonic, it's one line, it's in unison, right. which should be an advantage uh, because it's, it's relatively simple in that sense. Mm -hmm. But maybe right. that doesn't, maybe you need an organ to accompany it, or maybe you need uh, some other way of, 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 of uh, filling it out. So yeah, I, I think we should feel that, you know, as musicians, this is what we do. We, we interpret, we express, we adapt. And, uh, and I, I would love to see us do more of that with Chan and feel that freedom. Mm -hmm. I wanna stay on this just for a minute and actually talk about that, that feeling of restriction or maybe even confusion from interpretations as well. Um, I know I shared this with you already, but I think it's a great point to make in our conversation right now is that um, I recently just started using Mass 18 um, in my church for the mass setting. So for example, that's that, I don't know, this is probably maybe a horrible assumption to make, but I'm, I assume that mass 18 is probably the, the chant mass that most congregations still remember um, mm -hmm. in terms of Gregorian chant. And so I was reading from a modern day publication of the song Tus as I sang, um, as I sang it. And I got to a point where I knew from my memory that in a different edition, there was a note held, but it wasn't written that way in the modern notation. And so I panicked as I was singing and I kind of lost that prayerful presence because I went, do I keep going or do I hold this note? You know, so I didn't know what to do. Um, and so I think it's, it's those type of things as well that I think can be very detrimental or challenging for someone. It, 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 you know what, it doesn't even matter in terms of level of education or musical knowledge. Those are just the types of things that I think you know, it can maybe make people stop in their tracks whenever it comes to chant and making sure that it is used to the best of, to the best of its ability and authenticity, but also remembering that there are many versions that, you know, exist to some things. Yes, and I think you bring up a really good point, actually. I, I think uh, being a trained musician actually presents some obstacles to chant <laughs> because we're, we're trained in a certain like discipline. And one of those is to be very faithful to the music, the written music. Right. When we're talking about the earliest chant, we're talking about an almost exclusively oral tradition mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, and one that, that breathes. And when we're so rigidly focused on music, I kind of call it the, I call it the, the tyranny of literacy. We're almost paralyzed because that we imagine the chant to be fixed and unable to express anything. And this has been something that chant, yes, monks of Salem and others have, have tried really, really hard to get around. Uh, but it's a completely different way of approaching, approaching music. I mean, the earliest, styles of singing was that the the conductor did uh, wrote i mean the initial notation was developed for conductors not to be sung from and so it was the conductor's markings of let's lengthen this phrase let's shorten this phrase it wasn't for the choir people to read and uh i think that that's that's a dynamic that we need to recover uh once we learn to read music it's very hard to imagine, it's very hard to like improvise, for example. I mean, I, I can't improvise at all. My brother who never read music, that's it, everything is by ear. 
he can, you know, I'm, I'm so jealous of that. I kind of lost that. So, uh, uh, yeah, there, it's a completely different approach. I would love to see chant in the future just be learned by ear uh, and not, not just get away from all of these problems that the notation presents, all the scariness, this artificial of uh, fixity and rigidity. It's really not part of the earliest tradition. In your opinion, what are some of the opportunities that Gregorian chant can provide? You know, I taught Gregorian chant to undergraduates at Columbia University while I was a graduate student there uh, who were overwhelmingly not Catholic. And the response to it was almost universal. They all found it to be extremely meditative, uh, some of them might say prayerful, but but even the, whether or not you were, were religious of any kind, they found it to be to open a window toward to something else. It doesn't you know, represent something material. It uh, it lends itself to uh, well to, to contemplation and to a quieting uh, to to prayer. We would say it also, I think, connects us to our own tradition and our history, again, going back over, over a thousand years to uh, a, you know, a, very different, a very different church in a way that music, other music does not exactly. And I think a lot of the emphasis since the Vatican Council especially has been on immediacy and music that speaks to its time and place. But there's something to be said for music that doesn't speak to its time and place, that that points beyond the time and place to a bigger picture, to a larger church, to realize that we're, you know, we're one little speck in this enormous tradition that, we, that we've inherited, but that now we are also responsible for passing on. And of course, I mean, everyone listening can describe how chant affects them in their own way. For me, that's what it, that's what it does is, uh, is makes me realize, you know, how big of, and how ancient the church really is and the, the tiny part that I am in it. My last big question might be a little bit one to ruffle feathers. So if you're listening and this ruffles your feathers, stay with us because I think this is gonna be a good conversation. So we've discussed the phrase that there's a mindset or a paradigm that quote, chant needs to be restored in its proper place in the church. Can we kind of sit with this and talk with this a little bit? Yeah, restoration is one of those words that is so slippery. Uh, what you hear when the monks of Salem were, well, first fighting for, and then eventually won the privilege of, of creating these editions of chant, they're, they're uh, their, I don't know, motto or their, their war song really was about rest, restoring chant. Now, what they actually meant was a few things. One was just restoring uh, the, the, uh, the artfulness of chant. They thought it had been, the way that chant was being performed was just very, you know, bop, 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 robotic, unexpressive. Each note was held more or less the same way. So it was very like this and not, not very musical. And that's fine, You're, they're, restor they're restoring beauty. That's, that's not controversial. Uh, then they, but they also talk about restoring 
chant to its original. We now know that there was no original uh, chant develops in this meeting between singers from Rome and then singers from the Frankish empire, which is now we call France and Germany. And that these Northern singers really weren't able to sing the Roman chants and their poor rendition of what was sung in Rome is now what we call Gregorian chant. So it's this, it was created in this kind of fusion and this, this melting pot of uh, South meets North. So there, there was no original, uh, but when we imagine there to be an original, then, then again, there's only one way of, of doing it and, uh, and every other way is wrong. What, what the language of restoration also did, at least in the early 20th century, was to, to deny the value of the, basically the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent had tried to fix a number of things related a lot, number of complaints that say the Protestant reformers have with chant, namely that the, the musical accents, the melismas didn't line up with the textual accents. And so the music forced you to mispronounce the Latin. So they tried to fix that, uh, but, but they fixed it in a way that was not original. And so, but it was, but it was nonetheless in good faith when you hear this language of restoration, you hear it as if it was in bad faith, it's corruption, it's abuse. Pope Pius X uses the word abuse. And, uh, and so it becomes laden with all kinds of, of baggage. The, uh, the politics of restoration were also ones that the monks of Salem were, uh, were heavily involved with as a reaction to the French Revolution, as a return to the unity of church and state, the glories of Gothic France that was building these enormous cathedrals and, and a, a real like French nationalism as well. Uh, one of the reasons you always hear chant in these like echo chambers is it's supposed to be in these Gothic churches and that just you know explode with sound. And, but that's not adaptable again to parishes. It's part of this vision of you know, the glory days of France that, that they're restoring. Uh, that, so that, again, this language of restoration, first of all, it's not really based on anything historical. Uh, and it's also a real obstacle to, uh, to chant because it's, it's so particular and so, again, not, not historical. Uh, and even a rejection of history. The, the monks of Salem did a phenomenal work, but when there was ambiguity, their goal was to perform the chants. So when there wasn't, when it wasn't clear how to interpret this or that, they just created a solution and, uh, and, and, and created something new, a, a new kind of chance that, that spoke to their needs in the 19th and 20th century. So uh, I, I find the language of restoration to be, um, to be one of the major obstacles actually I, I'm, I, to chant now. It, I think it, it's, uh, it's misleading and, uh, and it, it calcifies the tradition and, and politicizes it in a way that it, no music should ever be. As we wrap up today, do you have any other closing thoughts or any other points you'd like to make about the uh, historical intervention on the basis of chant that we've been talking about today? Well, I think I think we need to, uh, to spend more time, even if we are not singers of chant, thinking about what it is that chant does 
that other kinds of music either doesn't do or could do, but, uh, but in relation to chant. Again, chant is, is unparalleled in any musical tradition, really in the world. It, it's such a remarkable, uh, remarkable body of music. It's something we should be very proud of as a church. But it's not one that we, that again, is user-friendly. People often say, I, want, I just want to perform chant. And I said, and exactly what is that? What do you want to perform? Uh, uh, we shouldn't imagine that we have it figured out. We shouldn't imagine that, that chant is a closed tradition, that it's not one that we're needing to continually engage, continually uh, redefine. And it's one, I think, uh, as liturgical music, musicians that's incumbent on each of us, not just specialists or publishers or, or whoever, but uh, each one of us carrying that tradition forward, deciding what it means and deciding how we're going to teach it. My last question to you, Brother John, is one that's maybe a little more personal. Um, what are, and I know I didn't mention that I was going to that I was going to ask you this either. So what are maybe a couple of your favorite chants? Uh, they're all for Easter, so I can't tell you. Uh, <laughs> one of them is the gradual Hectias, which is just uh, just an outstanding, uh, outstanding gradual, and it's one of the earliest. And I think that might be why I love it so much. Puernatus Est, which is the offertory for the third Advent, third Sunday of Advent, uh, it's gorgeous. I think Advent has the best music in the, the liturgical year. It's just uh, so beautiful. I've yet to find a chant that I didn't like, though I have to say uh, they're all they're all so amazing. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think also there's a lot of non-Gregorian chants, Byzantine chant, for example, Georgian chant. I encourage everybody who's listening. There's a, a version on YouTube of, uh, of a priest in, in the country of Georgia singing the Our Father to the to Pope Francis that is unbelievably stunning. And as I just went to a, a paper virtually uh, last week that is about to blow the door open actually on the origins of Gregorian chant as having connections to Byzantine chant to an extent that nobody's really uh, understood. But the, uh, the closeness between Eastern and Western chant is uh, remarkable. And I think as Western musicians, we could probably be paying more attention to that, uh, to that part of the church. Uh, again, we're not going to be singing Gregorian chant, but, it, but it's just so beautiful and inspiring. Why wouldn't you? So much great music. Well, as we wrap up, I want to thank you for your time today and also for your expertise, but for also just allowing us to explore something that may feel very foreign to a lot of us who are listening on the call or who, like we have discussed, maybe don't necessarily feel or see that connection between Gregorian chant today and how they can implement it into their ministry. And so I thank you for allowing us to have that conversation today. Thank you, it's been wonderful.
Thanks to Brother John for his time today. Tune in next week for part two of my conversation with him. We will be discussing how to adapt chant to a pastoral musician's modern needs, so you can use chant in your context today. From adding instrumentation, yes, we said it, to acoustics, notation, and more, next week we hit the ground running with practical solutions and considerations for you. The recording of Adoro Te Devote was produced by GIA Publications, and today's theme music was produced by Aaron Schaus. Today's episode of Ministry Monday was produced by me, Amanda Bruce. That's it for today. With the Spirit's gifts empowering us for the work of ministry, thanks for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday. Thank you.